0: Welcome to Ride Every Stride, episode 68.
1: Welcome to Ride Every Stride with Van Hargis, a podcast about horsemanship and more. Our goal is to educate, motivate, inspire, and entertain you through an exploration of everything horsemanship, and the intersection of horsemanship and humanship. My name is Laura McClellan, and I'm your co-host on Ride Every Stride, and I am here with Master Horseman Van Hargis. What's going on, Van?
0: Hey, Laura. Uh, hey, it's, by the way, it's good speaking with you again. It's been a long time since we recorded, and I can't wait to kind of get this thing going. But to answer your question, things are going really good. Of course, um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Texas weather, it's hotter than hell. <laughs> yeah.
1: Basically. Yes. Yeah. Think, think of the, think of what hell is like and add about 50 degrees and th- that's where we are.
0: I heard an old timer say the other day. Yeah. It's like, uh, Texas is like the devil's bed warmer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go then. Uh, there you go. Uh, so, all right. So what are we, now that we're back and recording again, what are we going to talk about today?
0: Well, today, Laura, we're going to talk about, it's something that kind of, it's, it's been kind of itching at me a, a while, I guess you could say, and it's a little bit more about leadership. And I guess the question that I've been kind of approached with, and I kind of want to present to our listeners is, are you a leader or an authority figure? And I think a lot of times people get those things kind of confused when we're talking about relationships of various sorts, but especially like with our horse stuff. And, uh, and, and really when I, when I think of a leader, cause that's one thing I push on people a lot, you've gotta be the leader. You've gotta be the leader. We've had, we've done several episodes kind of along that same topic, but then there's that fine line though, between being a leader and then just being this authority figure, this almost like a dictator type, uh, dictatorship type situation. And we don't want to create that either. So throughout the show, we're going to kind of talk a little bit about leadership and being a leader versus a dictator. And what are some of the questions that we need to present to ourselves so that we're really presenting ourselves to our horses and to others around us as being good leaders? And I want to emphasize first and foremost the importance of leadership. You know, we see this a lot with parents. We see this a lot with, uh, you know, some business-type situations. And I see it all the time with our horse thing. And there's that, that desire that we have in, inside of us that we just want to be liked. And so sometimes we see parents that are working extremely hard to make sure their kids like them and they, they want to almost be their friends. And then what we realize is that later there's that lack of respect there, that respect that's, that's due a leader. And then oftentimes once parents do realize they've kind of lost that, it's really hard for them to figure out, well, how do I gain that? How do I regain that? And when I, when they try to regain that, then they're in fear of losing that friendship and I've, I've quoted it before, and I say it all the time, again, in working with my horses. I am not worried in the least about being my children's friend. If I get to be, that's a huge, big bonus. Yeah. What my obligation to them is, is to be their leader, leader by example, leader by, by helping them and setting them up to make really good decisions. And that goes over so much in the horse stuff. And Which is, again, why I always say that horsemanship is an opportunity to practice humanship. Because we can actually put those things to practice. We can practice that, that leadership role. Because I, I, I challenge people, go and lovey-dovey on your horse for a few weeks and a few months and then try to get it to do something for you <laughs> and, and then report back to me, to quote Dr. Phil, how that's going to work for you. It typically just doesn't work if we're only concerned about giving them a cookie and loving on them and rubbing on them and feeding them at the right time and all of those things. Which, quite frankly, all of those things are okay, but they're not okay with the absence of leadership.
1: You know, I'm interested, when you sent me the outline that you wanted to kind of, or the, the topic you wanted to talk about, my first question when I looked at this is, okay, you're distinguishing between a leader and an authority figure. What's the difference? I don't think you're saying leaders don't have authority. So what what, what is the difference between those two as you see it?
0: Well, the biggest thing and the reason I kind of chose you know, the dictatorship type thing and the authority figure thing is because I wanted people to realize that to be a leader doesn't mean you've got to be mean. It doesn't mean you've got to set these rules in stone and they just can't be compromised in any shape, form, or fashion. That's not what a leader really is and what a, re- a leader does. A leader, first and foremost, is, weird as it may sound, they kind of put themselves not on the top of the pedestal maybe at the top of the pedestal and the ladder of hierarchy as far as leadership goes, but not their well-being. What they do, well, and sometimes that too. But what I'm meaning though is, is that I want to put that horse in a situation that I can set it up to do what I I would really like for it to do, but do so in a way that the horse understands what's going on. And in order to do that, I've got to be very, very consistent in my approach to teaching it to do what I want it to do. Consistency and persistence. Now, a dictator can just go tell somebody to do something and care less about whether or not that animal or that human or whatever the case may be has any understanding at all. They, do, they want that horse to do something. They want it to do it without concern about whether or not they know how to do it. They could care less about the horse's anxiety level, which is quite frankly, a lot of times why you see so many horses performing some really cool task. But they're doing so as if they're living life on the edge. They're doing so with unbelievable hyped-up emotions. They do, th- they do the task out of fear and unbelievable anxiety. And that's because they're not understanding what it is that they're doing, which is, frankly, very symptomatic of a dictatorship, sure. of a an, right, of an authority figure that's going to tell you to do it with absolutely no regard of what the perception of that order may be. But a leader, on the other hand, does it with understanding, does it with a certain amount of, of compassion, not for oneself to have achieving the task, but making sure the task is done with understanding. And what I tell my students all the time, I'm not a pass-fail person when it comes to training a horse. I don't care if the horse just did it. I want to examine how and why he did it. Did he do it with understanding? Did he do it with comfort? Did he do it with with ease of mind? Because see, that's the type of relationship that we would like to have. And yeah. we can accomplish that through leadership, but we can't really accomplish that through a dictatorship.
1: Well, and, and I'm thinking as you're talking about that, another way maybe to say it is, you can be a boss without being a leader.
0: Yes, absolutely. And
1: and we've all, many of us, those of us who've you know had a, more than one job for more than 15 minutes, have experienced that. A boss that was you know, had authority but was not a leader. And and I think I can see the correlation between some experiences I've had like that in my past and what you're talking about with our horse. A leader maybe cares about the growth of the one they're leading more where the boss, the the authority figure just cares about getting things done that they want done.
0: Exactly. And and I also think that a leader, when we when we're thinking about that, a boss may have a commitment to his job and to a task, but he doesn't have a commitment to the relationship. And, and that to me, again, is what I think separates a leader. A leader is not only dedicated to the task at hand or or to achieving something with its partner, in this case, the horse, but it's also committed to the horse. In that commitment to me of understanding and caring about how that animal feels about doing its job, and yet not being compromising in the fact that no, you can do this, and I'm going to show you how. Uh, and there's no such word as I can't in that situation. I don't want the horse or anybody around me, for that matter, to tell me I can't. But what I want to do, though, is help this horse feel that attitude or develop that attitude that it can. And how do I do that? Is by making a commitment to that horse's understanding. And and as I do that, and as I make that true commitment to that horse's understanding, it's weird, but I think horses can feel that. I just wonder, like, for example, you know, you mentioned that boss that can be a boss, but not necessarily a leader. Why do people do things for that job? And it's basically fear-driven. Oh, I've got to have this job, so I'm going to do that. Whether I feel like it or not, I'm going to do that no matter what, because I've got to have the paycheck. Or I fear being fired, or I fear being yelled at. So we don't do things with understanding and that feeling as if our input matters, we do that just because we don't want to upset the situation. We don't want to upset the dictator. We don't want to upset the authority figure. And I don't want horses that, I, that I'm working with and riding to do the same things for me out of the fear of what will happen if they don't do it correctly. Yeah. And I don't want them to feel like, and I, I don't know how horses sense it, but I just know it's just some reason they can feel when they truly belong part of that herd. In other words, did you really make a commitment to this horse? Because they can sense that. They can feel that. But if they feel like, oh, well, if I screw up, I'm I'm going to get kicked out the pasture again or worse. I'm going to get sold and dumped and whatever. Now, they, they just feel that they're just not wanted. And I don't know how they do it. It must be part of that survival thing they do in their herd. So to me, the leader makes a commitment to that herd. And in this mm-hmm. case, obviously, it's the horse and ourself.
1: How does that play out, I guess? I'm, I'm trying to imagine what, in your view, how how do we act as a leader to our horse? What what are the qualities we need to develop?
0: Well, first of all, let's examine in order to be a leader, what are some good characteristics of a leader? First of all, they're trustworthy, they're reliable, they're, they're usually somewhat successful. They kind of have to get things done. And in order to be that leader to the horse, then, and I, I say this to people all, again all the time, but are you making good decisions on the horse's behalf? You see, and, and, and it kind of goes back to me saying that same thing about making the right thing easy and the wrong thing difficult. And I'll use, a, I'll use an example. I would just want my horse to stand still. I've been riding it around the arena or riding it down the trail, riding it in the pasture, and I just want it to stand still so I can get a drink of water, carry on a conversation with a friend, or take a snapshot of the beautiful environment. Whatever the case may be, I just want the horse to stand still. And if the horse doesn't want to stand still for whatever reason, either it's anxious, it's scared, it's worried, or it's just. Doesn't feel the need to relax and take a break for a moment. I can't make it do that. But here's how I can make a better decision on the horse's behalf. Is standing still not easier physically on the horse's body and even in the mind somehow than moving around and being fidgety and anxious? Yes, but the horse doesn't know that. So I will make the suggestion maybe a few times. No, I suggest you stand still. But if the horse doesn't stand still, as a leader, I've also got to determine a reasonable consequence to its actions so that it can better determine that the offer that I originally made it was a good one. But here's, again, what I tell people in my mind, I don't look at it as I'm punishing the employee, I'm punishing the child, I'm punishing the the whomever, or I'm punishing the horse. What I'm going to simply do is give the horse a tougher task to do. Well, if you want, I really wanted you to stand still, but if you really feel the need to move your feet, then by all means, I could make you a much better horse by moving your feet. I can work on cantering. I can work on rollbacks. I can work on trotting. I can work on a lot of really cool things that's going to help you become a better horse. And meanwhile, you and I will develop the communication skills as we're doing this. But unfortunately for you, Mr. Horse, all that consumes a lot more energy. Mm-hmm. So you do that for a few moments until you can almost feel the horse getting to sense that, oops, I. This is kind of hard work. And then you go back to your original offer and you say, well, how do you think about standing still now? And now the horse might most likely buy into that idea. But originally the idea was for the horse's betterment. That was the easier task. And by doing that over and over again, that horse will soon begin to trust you. Number one, you're going to keep your promises because here's one promise that I kind of inadvertently made to the horse. I promise not to make you work if you stand still. But I promise that if you don't stand still, I'm going to make you work, you see. So by by being trustworthy, I'm keeping my promises. Either way, I'm keeping my promise to my horse. So that gets the horse learning to trust me. Well, when dad says to turn off the TV, dad means it, you see. They don't do it out of fear. They just know that, oops, there's going to be a follow through with that. Or like my girls used to tell me, Dad, we used to do a lot of stuff just to keep you from giving us a lecture. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> I'll so, do anything you, if you'll just stop talking.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so the girls would do stuff, not because they feared me talking or prefer they feared the lecture. It was just that that was the turning off the TV was the easier of the two tasks for them <laughs> from their perspective. So, <laughs> but, but either way, it was keeping the promise, you know, it's like the girls, Hey girls, turn off the TV and I won't talk, but I promise to talk if you don't turn off the TV. So you know, again, we just made things better for them on their behalf. And that's where they develop that trust. They develop the trust in your consistency and they develop the trust in you keeping and following through with your promises. And that's just one example of how to be a really good leader.
1: So leaders sec- keep their promises.
0: You betcha. And then security. Because with those promises and with that trust of consistent and persistent behavior, also that horse now begins to feel a sense of security. Whenever security is present, oh, here's one of those Oprah Winfrey moments. Whenever security is present, anxiety is absent. Mm. So whenever security is present, we can help alleviate that anxiety. You see? So that's what I want my horses to feel. I want them to always feel that it's okay to take that big, deep breath. I want them to feel that it's okay to loosen that jaw and relax those muscles and just do the task that I'm asking it to because it knows how, number one, and it doesn't feel like it's in trouble, number two. In other words, we've, played, we've replaced all that anxiety with that security.
1: And, and security and then, comes from knowing what to expect, don't you think?
0: absolutely
1: knowing that that the consequences so to speak are always going to be the same
0: absolutely mm-hmm. and then when you've got the trust you've got the security with those two those two build together and form another big block that helps develop confidence mm-hmm. confidence in themselves because they know what to expect they feel confident that they can make those judgments and those calls and they I, they they sense that they can interpret the how their leader feels and at the same time, with, with that confidence, they, they certainly develop more confidence in other things as well. Because, you see, I tell people when I talk about the, the importance of de- developing the confidence and what develops that confidence in the horse is to know and trust their leader. And we work on that in a more controlled type environment, such as home or someplace very familiar. Therefore, when you take your horse out to those less controlled environments, such as trail rides, rodeos, horse shows or whatever, The reality is we cannot control that environment. The only thing we can control is ourselves and we can control our thoughts. We can control our actions. So by being very consistent as a leader, I offer my horse that security and that confidence that they can trust me here, even in this new and different and ever-changing environment.
1: Sure, because... In that different environment, they may, you know, and I, I hate to sort of anthropomorphize horses, but they can sort of think. I don't know what that is, but I know who he is, and he wouldn't bring me near that thing if it wasn't safe for me.
0: Spot on. That's exactly right. You bet. Hmm. That's exactly right. And see, so to me, Laura, when we think about that, and this is what I, this is what I encourage people to do before they ever buy a horse, is ask yourself: Are you a leader? Because in my opinion, leadership is a choice, and sometimes it's just a choice to learn how to be a leader. You see, we have to make that choice, and we have to realize, okay, am I in a position and am I committed to make myself a better leader so that I've got something to offer my horse? Because, And I feel the same way sometimes about teenagers having babies. I'm thinking, what are you going to have to offer the kid? You're still a kid yourself. You don't have enough life experiences yet to offer that. And, and so obviously, I always try to encourage kids to wait, become a little bit more than a kid yourself so you've got something to offer the horse. Now, sometimes we get thrown into the fire, right? So sometimes we're thrust into a situation with a horse or whatever that situation may be to where, by golly, we've got to become a leader. But even then, even when we've got to and our feet are in the fire to do so, you still make that choice to be the leader. Because if you, if you don't make that choice, then not only do you fail, but so does your horse. And oftentimes those around you fail. And none of those are, sec- are conducive to the security and confidence we were talking about a moment ago.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it's so interesting that the connection you're making between the example you gave of, you know, teen parents or something and what you have to offer when you ask that question, you know, what are you going to have to offer that baby? I, I know the from my experience with kids in that situation, the answer is, well, I'm going to love it. And that's how yeah. we are. A lot of us us rank amateurs, not you, but you know, people like me, it's easy for us to think, well, I'm just going to love, I love my horse and I'm going to take good care of it. And, and love is all we need, but it kind of isn't, is it? With, in a relationship with a horse, that's, that's all well and good, but it's not enough with a horse any more than it is with a child.
0: Right. Love is
1: important. Caring, you know, is important, but it's not the same thing as it's not necessarily going to create that trust and security and confidence that you were talking about.
0: Exactly. And I don't want to beat an old dead horse to death, pardon the pun there, folks. But when <laughs> I, I don't want to go back and keep repeating over and over and over again what I call my four questions of successful horsemanship. And in fact, I'm going to encourage people to go back and look at previous episodes to find out those four questions again. But whenever we practice those four questions, it puts us into a position of, of helping make those right decisions. So that we're setting ourselves up. Now, what do I want? And we, we start figuring out how to present ourselves to this horse as a leader just by it, by just following those those four questions of successful horsemanship. And sometimes I, I ask and oftentimes ask people to test themselves. Ask your horse to do something for you. In other words, just say it's working in a round pen or, or walking from outside the stall to inside the stall. And and asking it to do so in a very quiet manner, and not just because he knows that there's a feed bucket in there, he's going to follow your authority or follow follow your, your leadership, but he's going to be following you not, not because he's afraid not to and not because he's going to get a treat at the end of it, but will he do it because you're its leader and you just made that suggestion? And if your horse begins to start trying to figure out your, for lack of a better term, your language and your communication to figure out what it is that you want as its leader and it's starting to perform that, then that should make you feel very good that you are making the right steps toward being its leader. Or are you having to rise to that level to be a much more strong authority figure and almost like a dictator thing, and you're threatening the horse? And when I say threatening, a lot of times that's nothing more than just a mindset. Sometimes if we do something with that sense of anger, now that's much more of a dictator-type relationship and much more of an authoritative, overly authoritative relationship. And it's not that we can't be strong leaders. In other words, do things with a certain amount of assertiveness, but you don't have to do things with, the, like a, with a threatening type authority, because that's not going to help that horse develop confidence in itself and certainly not going to help it develop confidence in you if it's doing things out of the fear of not doing it. The reason I say that is because if you just, I had a lady that dropped off a horse just yesterday at the ranch. And she was trying to get it off the trailer. And I swear to God, these are her exact words. Come on, honey. Come on. If you get off, I'll let you have part of mama's Bud Light.
1: (laughs) And and did the horse run right off that trailer?
0: Oh, my goodness. It was seeking out the case of Bud Light or whatever. I, (laughs) I just cracked up. But as she was talking to it, I'm thinking, well, wow. I wonder if it knows another language, too. Because rather than communicating to the horse in any other way, it was strictly verbal. And horses, quite frankly, they're smart as they are. They're just not going to figure, they're just not going to learn very many verbal cues and commands. We we, we can talk to them, we're red in the face, and it's just not going to let that horse know that we're its leader. And it's not going to be the type of assertiveness that we're going to need to apply to get the horse to do a task or even to try a task. So sometimes there's that fine line there, too, of, not necessarily becoming this outright authority figure and certainly not a dictator type thing and getting the horse to do something out of fear. But oftentimes we do have to make the horse uncomfortable enough to make a change. And just because we made it uncomfortable doesn't mean we're not its friend. And it doesn't mean that we're being too heavy or too hard. We're just simply making the horse uncomfortable enough to make a change. And again, I appreciate it that that's a a fine line, but it's something that that we have to practice. And in doing so, it teaches us a lot more about ourselves, Yeah. you know, because when we do that, do we do we escalate very slowly or do we go from asking, asking, asking? And then, oh, damn it, I'm just going to tip your head off. You know, we, we just can't go from one extreme to the other, because, again, that volatile type reaction isn't going to be conducive for the security and confidence that we're seeking. So, again, the question always comes up, are we practicing good leadership and are we choosing to be a good leader.
1: So if you want, and I know you've got some more things to say about this, but f- before we move on, I, I, I guess I have to ask for someone who wants to be a leader and not just an authority figure, not just a boss and not let themselves get to that point of frustration where they, you know, escalate things and, and start acting out of anger or whatever. How does somebody learn how to do that? If they especially if you've got a person who's maybe not particularly, doesn't think of themselves as a leader out in the real world, much less with a horse. How does a person learn to be a leader? And that's, I know that's a loaded question and we could like do three episodes about it, but briefly, what, what would you say to somebody like that, that I want to be a leader? I'm not exactly sure how I, how I develop those characteristics that make me a good leader for
0: my horse. Well, I think first of all, we have to start off extremely simply. I mean, I, I tell everybody all the time, you know, the biggest part of my program is just absolute basics and fundamentals. So I would start off with whatever task that you would like for your horse to do. Start off with it being extremely simple and very, very specific. And then just start experimenting with what it need, what you need to do, what actions do you need to take to get the horse to do that little bitty simple task. For example, I had one of my students the other day sitting on the horse. I said, look, I want you to ask the horse to move to its left. In other words, just turn to the left. And there's a lot of different ways a horse could turn to the left. It could turn to the left by, oh, rearing up and turning that direction. Or it could turn to the left by moving its left front foot. It could turn to the left by moving its right front foot first. It could turn to the left by walking forward and then gradually turning. In other words, there's a lot of different ways that this horse could turn. So I got very specific with my student. I said, look, what I really want you to do is ask the horse to turn to the left but I want you to position yourself and position your reins, position your feet in such a way that this horse is going to step first with its left front foot to the left. And now you see that it made us be much more aware of what it is that we want. Oh, I don't want the left front foot to move first. So if the right front foot begins to move first, we've got to figure out a way to tell the horse, no, no, that's not what we want. And yet at the same time, encourage the horse to give us what we do want. So sometimes becoming a leader is just experimenting through your communication to where you get what you what you want from the horse. And then when you get that, you've got to be able to give yourself a pat on the back and reward your horse at the same time for doing that little bitty simple task. Because if you can get the first step, you can get the second one. If you can get the second one, you can get the third. And the fourth follows it, which is, again, is exactly why our podcast is titled Ride Every Stride. It's literally one step after another. Once we've got the steps kind of figured out, then we can gradually begin to add, say, degrees of difficulty to those steps. We can go, what if we wanted to do that same thing but at a trot? What if we wanted to do the same thing at a canter? What if we wanted to do the canter in one lead and then switch to the other? So you see, in other words, we're starting off very, very simply, and we're just gradually increasing degree of difficulty as our communication gets better. I know there are certain listeners out there that have heard this analogy before, but this is a true story of my observation of my grandparents when I was growing up. They were in the dairy business and the cattle business together, and every morning, my grandmother and grandfather would go out to the dairy barn, and they would bring in the dairy cows, and then they'd start milking the cows. And in the dairy barn parlour itself, they they were constantly chatting with each other. Oh, that's such and such cow, and this is this cow, and have you put this feed out yet? Don't put that cow in the milk tank because she got a shot yesterday. So they were constantly communicating what was going on during the course of business of getting the cattle milked. Well, the schedule was they would milk the cows very, very early in the morning, and then right about toward the end of the milking, my grandmom would disappear to go to the house to cook breakfast, and my grandfather would wrap up things at the barn, and when he was finished, he'd go to the house and eat breakfast with my grandmom. At breakfast time, though, having heard all this conversation and this chatter out of the barn, at the breakfast table, hardly anything was uttered they would kind of look at each other as married folks would do and smile and they'd kind of point and if my grandmother needed my my grand, if my grandfather needed my grandmother to pass the syrup for the pancakes whatever the case may be he'd make a very slight little gesture and here comes the syrup sliding over to him so in other words the communication wasn't nearly as deliberate and as communicative at the breakfast table as it was out in the barn out in the barn it was like very deliberate it was very communicative very specific and at the table everything was very subtle. Mm. What I began to realize later in my life, though, was is that I bet it wasn't always that way. I bet there were times when my grandmother and my granddad actually had to say out loud, hey, Della, could you please pass the syrup? Because she didn't know him as well. But after a while, that communication, and here's the key for the horsemanship stuff, the communication had gotten so refined that the communication didn't have to be as deliberate. It wasn't as if my grandmother was reading my grandfather's mind. What it was is that she was reading his habits. She is reading the things that had been in place for years and years and years of marriage. And it appeared to maybe a newlywed, or in my case, just a young punk kid coming and hanging out with the grandparents over the summer holidays, that they were just reading each other's minds. But in reality, it was communication refined. And
1: that just takes time.
0: Yes, that just takes time and consistency and, and being persistent with that communication. So in order to be that leader and we're taking those steps, we've got to start out like those newlyweds. We've got to be very specific about what it is that we want and and be willing to communicate that and whatever means that it takes until the recipient understands it. And then when they do understand it, then we can kind of raise the bar a little bit. Before you know it, sometimes weeks, months, years later, the horse is responding to little bitty subtle type things. And what that really should tell us is that, wow, I've gotten pretty good at this leadership thing. I've gotten pretty good at this communication thing. How many really good leaders do you know that aren't great communicators? You see, every good quarterback I've ever met in my life or ever played with, they were phenomenal communicators, whether it be on pen and paper or if nothing else, just on the football field, but they were great communicators. And that to me is what a really good leader has got to be. has got to be a really good communicator. So to answer your question, let's break things down. Think about what it is that you want. Figure out a way to communicate that in a way that the recipient can can truly understand it. And, and that just, way we keep the anxiety level down. Yeah, Go ahead. Just Laura, I'm be sorry. Con,
1: and then just be consistent in, in doing that over and over and over and over time, those habits develop, I guess.
0: Absolutely. Mm. And the good thing is not only do those around us, and in this case, the horse learn more about how we are communicating and and in doing so it develops their security and their confidence and certainly their security and their confidence in us and oftentimes their security and confidence in themselves but in doing so we also get that practice of being a good leader we can even evaluate what we do how did that work how did, they, did did i communicate that clearly enough did the horse do it as well as i'd like or as quickly as i'd like or as timely as i'd like so in other words we can evaluate ourselves and if we do our if we evaluate ourselves truly objectively, then before you know it, we can actually develop our own leadership skills just based on our own judgment of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that to me is what I think is just so grand. The horse, bless its heart, gives us an opportunity to practice that.
1: And it carries over into other areas of your life.
0: Absolutely. You bet. I think so.
1: And so you've talked about you know the difference we started out talking about the difference between being a leader and an authority figure or a boss, and one of the things you've said that's kind of stuck with me that I'd love for you to maybe expand on a little bit is the idea that as opposed to just a pure authority figure, a leader is about making good decisions on behalf of the one that they're leading. How does that play out? What kind of things do you see that applying to in dealing with your horse?
0: Well, first and foremost, let's look at some scenarios. I'm a, I'm a big fan of a lot of different types of competitions, but let's face it, there are certain competitions that we would do on our horses that are really truly for our own enjoyment and the only things that, that we can truly understand as to how and why we're doing things. It's so far from what the horses understand that what it does for the horse is that even though they may be really good at doing certain things, it creates a certain amount of anxiety such as, oh, like there's some uh, extreme type trail riding type stuff that goes on and horses are pushed into certain things very quickly, very fast. And sometimes the horses aren't prepared properly. And as a result, their anxiety level goes up. There are oftentimes, and I don't don't want anybody to think I'm picking on a couple of different segments of the industry, but you also oftentimes see that with barrel horses, no matter how well they're trained, they just don't fully understand why they're in there running 9-0 and they're doing things at such a fast pace and and because of that lack of understanding of those things those horses don't respond well their anxiety level goes way up so to me a leader has got to take into consideration that feeling that horse in this case might might have if we do things in such a way not on the horse's behalf in other words are you doing that barrel race for, for the horse's behalf or are you just doing it for yours did you do everything in your power to prepare the horse for that type of situation both mentally and physically in other words the, the mental aspect of it to me is ever bit as important as this horse being a great, phenomenal athlete and even a trainable athlete. That mental disposition is so key if we truly care about the horse for, its, for the sake of it being a horse, not just for the sake of it just being, oh, that's my rodeo partner and it just wins me lots of money and, and gets me lots of reward in some other way. But if we're really looking at it from that horse's perspective, that horse will sense that, will sense that, will have a much better feel about what it is that we're doing with our horse. And that, to me, is that that real big difference. Are you doing it with that horse in mind for the betterment of the horse? And even when I look at the analogy we talked about earlier of getting the horse to stand still, something that darn simple, is what I'm offering the horse a better deal for the horse? Once we do that, that horse feels that commitment that we make to it, that we're not we don't let ourselves wrap our brain around the idea of punishment if the horse doesn't do what we want. Because horses don't understand punishment the way us horse the way us humans dole it out. They just don't wrap they they can't wrap their brain around it. So if we do so with their behalf in mind, no matter what it is that we're trying to discipline them to do, if we do it with their ultimate outcome in mind, horses sense that. It oftentimes helps us control our own emotions. And as a result, we end up getting what it is that we want, and we get it what we want with a much calmer, quieter attitude. And by doing so, again, it works on that feeling of security and confidence, again, both in ourselves as well as our horse. And I don't think authority figures really give it that much thought you see, authority figure is pretty much just, well, I just need you to do this because I said so. And oftentimes that, that authority figure has got a pretty good size hat to fill because underneath that hat is that big ego that we're constantly battling. And when our ego gets involved then suddenly we're more concerned about winning that trophy or looking good to the audience, whatever the case may be, that all of a sudden it's more about self than it is that well-being of that animal. And that's a very, I'll be the first to admit, that's a very difficult decision to make sometimes is that we really have to kind of put the pair of us because there's that commitment. You see the commitment to being a good leader to your horse is always keeping the, the well-being of that horse in mind, regardless of the trophy, regardless of the people in the audience laughing at you or whatever the case may be. You just got to do what's right. And the best part about doing what's right, not only because the horse sense it, Not only do those around you sense it, but most importantly, Laura, you sense it. You know that you did the right thing. And when you know that, it suddenly just helps you, in my mind, just absorb that leadership role that much better because you just feel like, wow, that decision helped me become a better leader.
1: Hmm. Lots of things to think about, and there's so many different ways we could we could go with that. But then again, we as, as we've said before, this could turn into a two-and-a-half-hour episode, which I don't think we're going for this time.
0: <laughs> there's a few things I want people to really think about. First of all, I yeah. want to throw a quote out there at them that I want them to really think about. And this quote just kind of hit me one day. Somebody asked me a question, and I just threw this out there. And it's another one of those God-blessing things, because I truly do believe that every once in a while, God just puts the words in my mouth. I have no idea what I'm going to say. And this question popped out, and or the, or a question popped out, and this answer just appeared out of nowhere from my, from my lips. But it was consistency and persistence is more effective than dominance. And I want people to really think about that overly bearing authority figure, that dictator type mentality is that characteristic of dominance. And yet, if we, no matter how slow we go or how hard we're willing to work, I just want folks to really think about, the idea that consistency and persistence is much more effective than dominance. Now, that's the quote I hope people go away with at the end of this episode. The other things I want people to think about are the results of that quote. And that the results of that quote are pretty simple in my opinion. It's commitment, it's trustworthiness, it's security, and it's confidence. I don't know anybody that I've ever worked with that don't want those four characteristics set about themselves and set about their horses. So I just wish people would really, really give that some thought at the end of this episode.
1: Well, lots of things to think about there. Yeah, I mean, that's the food for thought in, in our horsemanship, absolutely. But just in life in general, I can see the truth of that. I'm guessing there may be questions that pe- that people are thinking about as they're listening to this, some thoughts or some, and I know you would welcome their feedback. So I would encourage anybody who's got questions or, or just some thoughts that have maybe been provoked by the things that Van has said in this episode, uh, take a minute and, and share those thoughts with us. There's ways you can do that. Uh, you can drop into the Van Hargis Horsemanship Facebook page and leave a comment there. You can email your thoughts about this episode or your questions about horsemanship or humanship for that matter to Van at info at vanhargis.com and he would love to hear from you. What am I missing? We haven't talked much about what's new and what's going on. I know you've been working pretty hard on your new facility down there. Uh, Any updates on what's happening with that?
0: Well, it's just um, I'm learning how much of a welder I'm not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's truly an art, and I'm just not that kind of artist. Mm-hmm. I, uh, but, I, but I'm getting lots of practice at it now. I'm doing a lot of welding on, on pipe fencing at the place, and um, we're constantly building, and it, everything's constantly evolving. Our goal, though, Lars, is by the end of this fall, we're going to open up our intern and apprentice program again uh, to students. You know, it's been since we were in Sulphur Springs, Texas, several years ago that I had uh, my last intern and apprentice program. And so this time, we're going to be a little bit more prepared. We've got a full-blown dormitory that's in the works. And so the the dormitory is going to have an education center in there. Um, My office is going to be in the dormitory as well. So we're really looking forward to getting that thing going. And with that in mind, I would like to make an announcement as well as kind of an invitation. Uh, The announcement, of course, is that the uh, intern and apprentice program, which are two very similar but yet somewhat different programs, really what separates the two is the term. One is relatively short and the other one is relatively long. The longer one is kind of the equivalent of going to a trade school. You're going to come and work with us, and by the time you're out of there, we'll do everything in our power to help you find a job uh, within the horse industry. I've been in this industry for years and years, and I know lots and lots of horse trainers out there that are always in dire need of a really good, well-qualified hand to help them out. What we're going to do with our um, intern program is we're going to work very hard to develop those skills so that we can turn out good young professionals. And, and and this is something that's been in need for quite some time. And I, I think the curriculum we put together is just outstanding for that. Now, with that said, we're going to be offering for the first few students that apply, we're going to be offering some scholarship type situations. Mm. Because again, this is more like a trade school. So it's going to cost you to come here and learn that intensely from me. And when I say intensely, sometimes you're going to be getting up real early in the morning. And sometimes you're not going to get to bed until real late at night cuz this is the horse world folks uh horses don't wear timexes and sometimes the days are incredibly long and there's no such thing as a rain out day there's, so I want folks to realize it's it's a it's a very intense educational program opportunity so,
1: so this is not like a dude ranch vacation
0: yeah and we're <laughs> going to run you off if you even got that attitude I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um and and in fact you know I don't mean to sound like I'm hard on these guys but there's been times they that they realize that there's a big difference between when you get to ride a horse versus when you got to ride a horse. Mm-hmm. But I, as you know, Laura, I take what I do very, very seriously. One of the biggest aspects of, of our intern program is safety, safety, safety. I, I very often tell people that one of the greatest accomplishments of, of my career is going 43 years without a time loss injury. And, um, and so that's the type of education that we're going to pass on to those guys how to be an effective, really good leader to those around you as well as your horse and at the same time do so with your absolute safety in mind, the safety of others, and of course, the safety of your horse in mind. But we will be giving away some scholarships uh, for that intern and apprentice programs. So we're going to encourage folks out there to start sending in those applications to us and they can send them into info at vanhargus.com. And what I'm going to require, Laura, is videos of them actually working with horses. I want to see references if you've got them. And I also want to see a very well-detailed, thought-out resume. I don't want to see just some, I love horses, written on an e- email and send that to me. That's not going to cut it. So there's, um, not, a,
1: there's not an application to fill out there. You you want a detailed Resume, you want videos of them working with horses, you want references if they've got them, and they email those to you at, at the info at vanhargus.com Is that right?
0: Absolutely. Okay. Yep, that's exactly right. And um, the more detail they can provide for us, the better. The, it's certainly going to increase their chances of getting accepted into the scholarship aspect of it and even getting accepted into the program itself. because. Our dorm room is only going to house a certain number of people. And quite frankly, just like at a clinic, I don't want to take on more than what we can handle here. We want the, the program to be very intense. And if it's um, if we've got too many people all at one time, in my opinion, the program is going to get diluted. And we don't want that. We want everybody to have lots and lots of hands on, lots of time in the saddle, at the end of a lead rope, under a horse, on a horse, you name it. We and want and everyone to get lots with of you. experience. And working Absolutely. With you.
1: And, and just, I want to clarify something, because a minute ago when you were talking about kind of what the expectations were going to be, you mentioned about working with those guys. Is this, are these programs open to women as well?
0: Oh, absolutely. Okay. You bet. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of look at guys and... Uh, horseman
1: in the generic is, sense
0: yeah with yeah with no gender intention okay. a- attached so, that's what i thought but, yeah. but i
1: just wanted to make sure that if pe- people heard that reference that they didn't assume from that that you were only going to be working with male guys girl right. guys and, can come too
0: <laughs> and various ages for example yeah. we've had uh we've had a young student from mexico apply his parents contacted us first and um My biggest concern was he was only 15, but I had to realize, too, that things are different in that country than there are here. So at 15, they expect him to go off and get an education and kind of go out and start doing his own thing. So there's a little bit there's a thing different there. So because he is so young, though, we required a lot of a lot more information. I wanted to find out and interview his parents. I wanted to find out where they how they felt about him going away and spending time, you know, here in the United States with us in that situation. And, uh, and of course, we wanted him to have all of his paperwork and documentation to be correct. So we're, we're taking various ages for the most of the Americans, though, and I don't mean to sound like I'm being biased here from one nation versus another, but for most people, I'm going to require that they're at least of legal age, which of course is 18. And I want them to be thinking that I don't want them to come and hang out just because they want to learn some really cool horse stuff. I want them to come out for the intern and apprentice program if they're truly thinking about making it a career choice, yeah. and again i we, we've had another applicant who was thirty eight years old so uh, and and yet we've got another guy from New York that comes out and hangs out with us that's a lot older than that He's not necessarily going to be a horse professional, even though he's got a good horse business, a great boarding facility up in New York, but he's always eager to learn, so we want to encourage people don't put yourself on the shelf just because you're of a certain age if you if this is something that you really desire to do, visit with us and if you feel like applying and coming down and being a part of the program, all by all means, give it a shot.
1: Yeah. So if you have questions about that before you put your your application together, if maybe you just want to find out if it's something you should apply for, uh, you can also email van at info at vanhargis.com and just uh, let them know what you're thinking and ask whatever questions you might have. But the idea isn't. It's as I said. It's not a dude ranch ranch vacation. This is uh, you're going to come to South Texas and learn to be a leader for your horse.
0: Absolutely, Laura. Yep.
1: All right. Anything else before we uh, shut this one down?
0: I just want to do a shout out to the folks up in uh, the Ontario, Canada area. We're going to be doing some, and they can go to our website to find out more information. But we're going to be doing a clinic up there in uh, September. And while we're there, we're going to kind of be touring around the area a little bit, doing some private lessons, as well as uh, what we call mini clinics. So we're going to be doing the big clinic, and then we're also going to be doing a series of little small clinics. And when I say a mini clinic, Laura, that's usually, oh, about up to a half a day. And I think sometimes I'll throw in about six hours worth of instruction, which is a fairly good day for most people. But we'll 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 throw in about six hours worth of instruction, and we keep our groups even smaller, two to four for a mini clinic. So we're doing several of those, and it's not too late to sign up and, and try to get us to, to uh, lengthen our stay in that region. So they can contact us at info to find that information out, or they can go to our website and, uh, and contact the lady that's hosting uh, that event up there. And again, it's right up around the Ontario area of Canada.
1: So there you go. Always lots of information on the website, and that's at vanhargus.com. Uh, You can see Van's schedule, information about various events he's going to be participating in or hosting or sponsoring or any number of things, along with lots of other information there. And just, you know, we're getting kind of long here, so I won't belabor it. But uh, there's also the Van Hargis Top Hand Club and the store there where you can buy some of the stuff that Van has designed or and recommends or and uses himself. So visit vanhargus.com for that kind of information and if you still have questions of course email him at info at com. I think that's it. Any last thoughts for the listeners, Van?
0: Well, Laura, I just can't think of a thing except for of course I I always want to throw out my appreciation to the audience and thank you for your patience for waiting for us to get some more episodes recorded. We've had lots and lots of schedule conflicts and weather conditions and all sorts of different things. None of those are really good excuses, but we we just had a hard time getting ourselves back behind the microphone again. But I do want to remind everybody that to always remember that it's your ride, it's your trail, and it's your journey. So ride every stride.